This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 172 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm very excited to bring to you only for the second time, a fellow British firefighter, Wayne Norris. Now, Wayne is not only a fireman over there, but also one of the heads of Our Blue Light, which is a mental health charity they founded to raise awareness for mental health issues in first responders, prisons, and associated professions. So a great conversation. We explore the British Fire Service, the mental health side, Grenfell, some other areas. A great, great conversation. Before we get to that, though, please take a moment and go to whichever app that you listen to this podcast on, whether it's Stitcher, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and leave a rating. The more five-star ratings that we get, the more visible we become when people are searching for a podcast like this. And then take your social media, email, word of mouth, and share these incredible stories. Each one of these people that comes on the show is going to be the solution to people that are hurting somewhere on planet Earth. And all I ask you, the audience, to do is help me by share these amazing episodes and this podcast project. So with that being said, I introduce to you Wayne Norris. Enjoy. Wayne, I want to start by saying thank you for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. No, it's not a problem, mate. No problem. Um, so normally I open with uh, where we're finding you, but we literally, just as we were about to record this, heard that there was an attack in London. So from your perspective in the British media, what did you heard about the London Bridge attack? Um, well, I was actually, I've just been sat with the missus in the dentist and it came on the, um, the Sky News as a breaking story. So I've not really seen an awful lot of it as of yet, just what's on the news and what's being banded around. Yeah. I mean, from what I saw from the BBC, I know we were talking a second ago before, but it looked like some incredibly brave people jumped on this guy who had a knife, who, you know, obviously is terrifying. 
um, and probably save lives. So it'd be interesting to see when uh, when this kind of rolls out what the true story was. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I've just seen I've just seen a snippet on uh, you know on social media of um, the camera footage of, of the the guy getting pulled off and then the police having to open fire. And I, you know, from the looks of it, they that you can't praise people enough to stand up to people like that anymore. They that you know, it's the heart goes out to them. Yeah, well, actually, you know, that's a great topic for us to open with. Um, being here, obviously, we are a big uh, gun-carrying nation, if you like. Um, and I know from looking across the Atlantic from here, you know, there's obviously the, the, the knife crimes seem to be bad. And it seems like the people in the, the police, in emergency medicine, seem to see a rise in knife crime. But I've obviously got a slightly dis- distorted view now. It's been literally 17 years since I lived in the UK. Um, has there been any discussion on carrying weapons in England or are people still holding fast? I, I th- personally believe that where we got to with no guns is a very, very, very good thing. But what's the uh, the dialogue in the UK from you living there? Um, li- living here at the moment, there, there is, you've, it's openly seen that there is a higher knife crime rate. Um, the, the hospitals are seeing stab wounds on a daily basis. You watch these programs like 24 hours in A&E and you're constantly seeing people coming in with stab wounds. The, the police have over the past few years started increasing their taser um, sort of distribution among the force. So rather than having um, armed, you know, guns out there that can neutralize the threat they've got these t- taser guns now which will dis- you know disable the threat so they, they can bring them to justice who knows what the future holds yeah yeah because i mean again it's prevention I, i'm always amazed you know we, in here in america it, it's a very polarizing topic to me again I, I try and stand in that middle ground where usually common sense resides Today, 2019, with all the guns that are in this country, I think it's justified to to own one. You know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, as they say. Um, but the goal is obviously to put that environment into our nation where we decrease the risk. So, you know, I, I think it's more a mental health issue anyway, to be honest. But um, what amazes me is we look at England, we're like, oh, well, they don't have guns. And you forget that... After World War Two, there were guns everywhere. We were in the middle of, of the biggest, you know, war of our century. And I'm intrigued to see what the model was to remove guns from us and how that would apply to, you know, very gun heavy nations like like America. Yeah, it'd be good to see. I mean, well, up until a few years ago, you know, England was this sort of like polite, um, respective country where you walk down the street, everyone respected each other. But now, you know, it seems to be over the past sort of, I'd say, probably 40 years, you know, since like like the industrial action of the of the coal closures and stuff like that, that we see, we see more of this sort of um, survival attitude in people, you know, where, they, where they, they're either fighting to survive or you, you've got, you've got that sort of, that mentality ingrained into people now. Does, it, does that make sense? No, it does. And I think that there's a, a sense of belonging. And I think England is a great, um, 
a great example of the pros and the cons of, you know, tribalism. So, you know, there's that passion, for example, for football teams, you know, yeah. which is great and it brings you together. But then you and I both know there's a very ugly side to that as well. When we grew up, when we were young, people were literally murdering each other over a football team, which was insanity. So I think there's with these gangs rising now in in the UK, it's again, it's showing us that we th- there's a there's a void in that tribe, that sense of community, that sense of belonging, and you can fill it with something positive or you can fill it with something negative. And where they're leaning towards a negative means that we probably need to work harder in those communities to to put more positive outlets for the, the young people. Yeah, no, that, that I totally agree with you there. At the moment, there is, I mean, across the UK, there's lack of funding in different aspects, the community groups. I mean, you go back, what, probably 10 years when um labor had had you know took charge of the country we had things like shore start that helped new mums um helped the the less fortunate who couldn't who needed help being educated and then you know when that money ran out they disappeared and were back to square one in some aspects yeah now what about the again your perspective i'm not trying to load any of these questions for for me in England up till, you know, the age of 27 when I technically left, um, you know, permanently, I have always been enamored by the NHS. It is obviously not a perfect system. You know, there are, there, I think it's more geography. Like if you live in a very, um, uh, population dense area, then the resources, the hospitals, the doctors can be kind of worn thin. I grew up in the country. What I saw my family get for all those years, including my, my, 99 year old granddad who was terminally ill was nothing short of incredible so i've been a huge advocate for a system where everyone gets healthcare, especially when there's a preventative element to it um that being said what is your perspective of the nhs um today and you know and and how can we improve it if it needs improving yeah i've got i'm the same as you i've got nothing but admiration for the nhs it is I mean, my, my grand, she's 94 now and she's got metal hips, metal knees, you name it. She's very short off Robocop. And <laughs> uh, the, the NHS have provided all that. You know, um, it's, it's, it's good. You know, when you need an ambulance, one turns up. It's they, they, where I live in Blackpool, they've built this new cardiac unit and it's meant to be one of the most advanced in the country. And they bring people here for all sorts of heart transplants, uh, you know, and some, the, some of the technology and the, the skills and them surgeons and doctors use it is it's new world technologies. And it's all been created by by these wonderful minds of the NHS. And, you know, the, the care you get off the nurses, the, the passion you see in the nurses the, the, and the, the A&E staff is you you can't. You can't sort of take that from them. They are they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that they they seem to be faced with the same problems that you know our profession, firefighters do, the, the medics do, the police do, which is you have these incredible men and women, doctors, nurses, and all the staff associated with those, with this desire to make the world better, but then are. Um, are kind of betrayed by the people who do the funding. And when that's that's the actual people, you know, in the budget side, whether it's the politicians selling cuts and also 
you know, elements of, of us, of the community that are putting our creature comforts ahead of the most important things, hospitals, police, fire, teachers, you know, uh, medics and, and those areas. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. You know, you, you see, I, I, t- I talked to quite a few NHS staff and, and when you, you listen to their struggles, you know, they're working all the hours God sends uh, for next to minimum wage. And it just it just seems wrong. You know, that there you go to these people when you are you're at that that point in your life where no one else can help you. And they take on all that burden and th- there's no sort of thanks for it. And that it's, it's a sh- it's a sad place to be at, I think. Yeah, no, it is. And I, I think the what I see here, and I haven't had anyone that's disagreed with me unless, you know, I had someone from a pharmaceutical company on there, um, <laughs> is that we are a profit-based healthcare system in, in America. There's no question about it. You know, the chronic disease medications, you're not told, oh, take these blood pressure meds for three months and we're going to work on your diet and your exercise. We're going to taper you down and you'll be off on this month. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, you've got high blood pressure. You're going to be on this the rest of your life. And what I think a lot of people miss with the NHS model is if you have the funding coming from a taxpayer, whether it's purely government run, whether it's, you know, a relationship with private companies, good private companies, and there are some great ones out there like Virgin, for example, um, then your whole push then is going to be prevention. You don't want the nation to be sick. So you're going to put more money in school dinners, in exercise programs, you know, in, in all these elements that can reduce all these diseases that that um, cost us money, smoking cessation programs. But, and I think that model is so good for a nation. But when you have a nation like us, where there's no money in healthy people and there's no money in dead people, then the chronically ill is where the the cash cow is. And so I wish that we would understand the philosophy behind the NHS, which is, you know, we want the everyone to have health care. We have eight-year-old people standing in Walmart here greeting because they can't afford their health insurance. It's disgusting. But if you have that prevention, it shouldn't cost a lot. You know, if you fix all these things that are getting people sick. I know even Britons, I, I saw they're starting to consider now decriminalization of drugs. That's a huge move. That's a, an amazing move that must cost so much money at the moment, especially on, on the, the police departments. To, to do a proactive thing like that, you're going to save money so that, you know, it's not going to be a drain on the taxpayer. Yeah. Now, now that's it. You know, I, I say it to a lot of bosses, you, 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 your staff are more productive when they're at work. So if we, if we look after people, keep them working, keep them providing for their community themselves, you know, it's and ultimately that that stems back to the NHS, and this is why they, they want this push on. Let's get the kids healthy. Let's get them into that lifestyle, so it doesn't it doesn't hinder them in later life. It doesn't pull them into this this cycle of where they need constant attention, help, um, and also that that financial cost that comes with that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that most people do care about other people, but there are definitely people, and I'm sure we both know them, in administrations who really don't care. They don't care if the firefighters, you know, worked themselves into the ground, you know, but then the other side is is the fiscal. They do care about the numbers, their budgets, but it's just about having the foresight, just like a lot of these great nations have done, you know, they plan generations ahead. Um 
but the foresight to see that a, some money up front is going to save a huge amount of money down the road. And whether it's, again, changing school lunches or, you know, putting exercise equipment in fire stations, whatever it is, that that is going to pay dividends if, you know, if you can get past that initial purchase. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Right. Well, speaking of that, we're going to transition into you. We've kind of deviated from my normal uh, opening questions. <laughs> but um, I remember Jamie Oliver came here and did uh, a kind of a pseudo reality show on trying to change the school dinners here. It's one of my, you know, it's it nauseates me that the first formative years of, of a child's life, we're teaching them all the wrong things. Um, I know he did uh, a program in, in the UK, but I really have not followed up as to how successful that was. Was he part of the push? Did it actually change the way that um, we feed our children in, in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland? I think it has, yeah. They, they, I mean, when I was at school, there was you could get pizza at lunch. Um, now, there's, they're offering a few more healthy options. I mean, even to McDonald's, you know, you can swap out your chips and your Coke for carrot sticks and a, you know, a fruit bag. And and I think I do think it's worked. His his push I think has taken a massive impact um, on on kids nowadays. I mean, my nephew he's he's now twelve. He he doesn't like chips, and that 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 can only be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's great to hear because I know he did it here. It was in the Midwest somewhere, I think, and it was a, you know a specific school district. And there were some interesting lessons like, oh, we've only got this budget. And he basically took that budget, taught the dinner ladies how to cook, you know, men and women. That's, I don't want to sound derogatory when I say dinner ladies, but the the uh, the people in the in the, the kitchen and made them realize that for that same budget, you can actually create a much healthier menu. And I think that's a huge myth is that healthy food is, is expensive. That's, that's bullshit. You know, there's, there's uh, so many ingredients that you can use that are very, very inexpensive, but Sadly, I believe after he did that, I think the next budget year they went back to their old way of doing it. So it's very sad. Yeah, it's that it's that cycle we're in, that vicious cycle. Yes. All right. Well, let's let's start from from your beginning. So first, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm currently at home in Blackpool, Blackpool. in the uh, UK. Tell people where that is geographically. Uh, so it's northwest of England, um, probably about sixty miles outside of Manchester. Around about 120 miles from London, um, mid-country-ish between it, um, Scotland and uh, London. Um, yeah, and that's it. It's quite cold here at the moment, five degrees. It's a little nippy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's that's where you, you find me most of the time. Brilliant. Now, were you born in Blackpool? I was, yeah. Born okay. and raised here. So tell me about your family dynamic. What did your parents do and how many siblings? Uh, so I've got two twin sisters, uh, mum and dad. Mum used to run a hotel. My dad was a joiner by trade. Um, yeah, we all lived together like a, you know, 2.4 family, you know, dog. You know, it was like a stereotypical family was that growing up. Right. What about sports? And obviously, you know, became a firefighter. It's a very um, physically demanding profession. Were you a footballer or did you play other sports? No, football never interested me. I was um, I was brought up with ice hockey. What? <laughs> that is very yeah. unusual to hear a British guy say that he started with ice hockey. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I think it was 
I got taken down to the ice rink at a young age and I sort of took to it like a duck to water. And it was one of those things. It was like, well, you know, let, can I do it every Saturday now? And of course, then you, you migrated into peewee, peewee hockey. And then it was every, every Tuesday and Thursday down at the ice rink with the stick in my hand. And that, that sort of, that took me all the way up to sort of high school. And then, you know, it sort of dropped off. And then I got playing it again when I was, when did I start playing it? About, probably about four years ago. Brilliant. Does the department have a team? No, they don't here. No, the, the, the country have a UK firefighters ice hockey team. But um, Lancashire Fire, Manchester Fire, they don't have their individual team. Right. That's pretty. I actually skated my junior school. Um, I think it was every Wednesday. Um, I think like in the summer we would go to the pool swimming, and then, and in the winter we go to ice to the ice rink. Or maybe it was I, I forget exactly the frequency, but we would we would ice skate anyway. But I never actually got to play ice hockey, so that's uh, that's that's so cool. Um, all right then. So, what about in your school age? What was your career aspiration when you were young? <laughs> From the age of seven, it, I always wanted to be a firefighter, um, and it was either being a firefighter or driving JCB. Um, which, if you don't know what JCB is, it's one of them uh, like multi-tractor diggers that we see quite a lot of in the UK on the roads. Um, and yeah, and my. You know, it was it was a strange one because I remember watching the one of the first episodes of London's Burning, and thinking that looks a cool job. And then that's why you know that's what I set my sights on throughout throughout my school life, leaving school, then to college, and then yeah, in the fire service now. Brilliant. Yeah, I remember that show, and I, I I don't know if I've told you this specifically, but very long story short, they told me I was colorblind when I was young, and I could never be a fireman, so I had to wipe it off my uh, my slate. And then I came over to America and realized, what the hell are they talking about? I can see color. And so I challenged the test and they were like, oh, no, you're fine. That's <laughs> like, shit. <laughs> but I mean, it just wasn't in my destiny to work in, in the UK specifically. But um, so for people listening, then I know your kind of hiring process is different to a lot of the, the states here in, in America where most of us go to fire school first and medic school, you know, EMT school, and then we go and get hired. So. Um, what is the process like and kind of how many people are you competing with? So in the, the UK, um, it starts with basically they'll put adverts out for application and then you once you apply, you go through a um, fitness test, which is more like a practical application day where you, you do ladder climbing, confined space test, um, hose running, just to make sure you've got that you can deal with those sort of aspects of the job. Um, and then you go for your interview, which is you and two station managers usually. Um, a and then it's your basic uniform fitting, medical, and then you go. You do you, when you if you start and you're successful, you do between a 13 and a 15 week recruits course. And then from that, you're then placed on a watch on a station for maybe two to three years, sort of probation period before you then go back. To training school to be signed off as competent wow so, so you have a two to three year probation and then you get retested before you're actually released as a fully fledged firefighter yes that's very different to hear um for, for they reckon on average for every one position they advertise you could be competing with up to three thousand people wow yeah i mean i mean some of the larger cities have that kind of ratio as well but but at least you have 
veterans preference you know fire academy medic there's there's elements you can have to improve it but you're literally competing with everyone else who has pretty much nothing walking through the door yeah yeah now do they give a preference to veterans though in the uk uh they haven't done previously um that i'm aware of whether they do it you know behind closed doors i, I couldn't tell you but i do i i am aware there is a program ongoing throughout the uk to sort of look at veterans look at um, other service workers because you know, ultimately you're paying you don't want to pay for that additional training if somebody's already got it does that make sense yeah yeah exactly and, and you know you, you've got people that especially if they've been on active duty that's a hell of a skill set they can bring back to the fire service um, we've, we are going for a big push at the moment um, in the UK through FireFit and it's it's a, a program to basically get firefighters up to the level of fitness they should be at. And going going back to the NHS, it's getting your workforce in a fit and ready state to, one, prevent injuries and prevent them being off work sick and, and sort of costing the brigade money or the, or the NHS money. And it, it's, a, it's a great sort of initiative because they're providing a lot of like fitness equipment and um they're, they're rehashing the sort of um, fitness standard tests we do to get into the service. So they're making sure that the right person comes through the door for the job. Does that make sense? No, it does. And it's proactive, you know, crazy talk. <laughs> um, well, speaking of the, the fitness test, so so I talk about the bar being set high. This, this show is always like a, a double-edged sword. So we've got the ownership of you and me holding ourselves to a standard and then we've got the environment that we're in to make us thrive, which is obviously the the uh, employer standard. But how how high is that bar set physically? And then do you have an annual test to, to maintain that bar? Um, yeah, we we the the fitness standard we've got to do is your VO two max. Um, as long as you can keep that up, then you're basically on active duty. Um, so, like in in my own service, it's a bleep test once a year. Um, other services, there's different tests per service, but the national standard is the VO2 max, so that can be achieved through check the step test, bleep test, okay. um, what bike challenge. Right, so so when you say the beep test, that's the one where you have a set length, usually like the length of a basketball court, and you have to run across every time it beeps and it progressively gets shorter and shorter, and at some point you you're not going to be able to carry on and that's the level that you're at that's the one yeah brilliant some people call it a shuttle run um but yeah it's it's known as a dreaded bleep test <laughs> okay so then as, as that as your standard with you having been in the fire service for quite a while now what kind of uh what is the effectiveness of that do you think that you have a pretty fit fire service in general I, I do, yes. Yeah. I mean, you look around at firefighters now and they're not, you know, because they're more active now, there's less sitting around on station. You've got a more leaner workforce. Um, and you, you can see, because since this, because up until a few years ago, you used to be able to smoke on stations. So of course you'd have your, your, your old sweats, as you'd, as you'd say, in, in the TV room, chuck, puffing away on the old, um, smokes. And then uh, since that got kiboshed, it's very rare you see firefighters smoking. 
Brilliant. Now, what, now, so speaking of that, so here's an interesting thing. I hadn't ever had this discussion before, but you spurred the thought in my head because of smoking. So in America, you know, we have all these private insurances. So technically, no one's covered unless you buy health insurance. But then there you are, you work for the British Fire Service and the NHS is obviously incorporated as, as, as our healthcare in the UK. So if a firefighter gets cancer, has a heart attack, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, that's, that's just basically a seamless transition into the NHS anyway. Is that correct? There's the, you don't have to have any extra work insurance because every British person's already covered. No, no, no. Straight into the NHS like everyone else. Yeah. How simple. <laughs> and it's it's amazing isn't it because it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are in this country it doesn't matter how injured you are you what you go in that door with they'll treat you yeah because we fight so hard for like cancer presumption and all these things here and you know it's all and we'll talk about actual like long-term illness in a moment but but yeah even for the treatment you know and and the fact that there's no thought you know you just it doesn't matter if you're a firefighter and you have smoke inhalation, you're a policeman and you, you got stabbed. There's there's no no red tape. You just go to the hospital, no. they treat you and you leave. Yeah. And that's it. There's no prejudice. As soon as you walk through that door, you could be absolutely anybody and they'll deal with what they say. Yeah. And I learned that, again, that fosters that altruistic human desire to help people and i love that there's nothing worse than hearing story after story actually i just spent the the weekend with um eric stevens who's a firefighter here in in uh, los angeles who's being diagnosed with als and that's the one that's a degenerative one where the muscles slowly start stop working you know so they require um you know the wheelchairs and ventilators and all these things you know and they're, and they're like wondering how they're going to pay for it you know, what a horrible thing for someone to, to, if they do, are they going to be able to lose that, you know, they're going to lose their home? Are they going to have to leave their family in debt? I mean, what a horrible thing for someone, God forbid, they have a terminal disease to, to, to hold on their shoulders the thought that they're actually leaving a financial burden for their family by having the audacity to be dying, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, it would, for, for anybody in that position, I couldn't think of anything worse. You, you're one. You're having to deal with what you've been dealt with, and then secondly, you're having to, you know, fund it. Yeah. And you know, and one of the things is, if you're off sick, you know, you're off work sick. You're not going to earn money, so you're you've then dropped into the hole where you're going to find it hard to climb out. Yeah, exactly. Now, well, speaking of that, so say you're on a fire, you, you know, pulling someone out, you tear your meniscus in your knee. When, when in the fire service, that's obviously a work-related job. Are they, are they paying you while you are off and rehabbing? So yeah, you get your statutory sick pay. Um, then they will, you go through the NHS treatment. We've also, got, we also looked after quite well in this country by the firefighters charity, which, so you can, you can apply to them and go, go to one of their centers and they'll offer you, um, additional physiotherapy massage and um, rehabilitation treatment so it, i do feel we're quite looked after in some aspects excellent now the one last thing and then we'll move on to you know the other things that we were going to talk about but god forbid you know one of your men and women gets cancer um you know and they obviously have to retire out are they taken care of is there an understanding that it was job related because of the shifts because of the smoke because of the other exposures 
at the moment they're, they're going through we're at um a big sort of contact excuse me <laughs> contamination um study of cancers and how they might may have developed on the fire ground um so i mean if you if you it's been quite a lot over the news here and they've just sent a recent study out um survey out today so it is being monitored um at the moment at the moment you, they will you, you you get your standard pay you get your standard sort of um treatment as you were if you if you basically twisted a knee or you went off with cancer you'd have the same sort of level of treatment but this is where the nhs steps in and, and the firefighters charity because they they're quite good because if even me in Blackpool, if I if I sort of developed cancer tomorrow, that the NHS will book me in at the Christie's Hospital in Manchester, which is a dedicated cancer hospital. Um, they will also um, give you the sort of advice and guidance of who you need to contact regarding um, bills, um, the home, the mortgage, anything like that. And it's it's the same. We get the same level of treatment in the fire service, and it, it's you know it's all all works in hand in hand. Yeah, it's interesting with the the contaminants as well. And we have the same thing here. Like we're getting a great awareness now for the exposure. We're slowly starting to take on board the Swedish clean cab model um, that the healthy firefighters guys have started, but. The discussion that's not being had is the carcinogenic fact, uh, effect of shifts, you know, and, and that's that's the thing with the presumption, these poor men and women that get cancer over here, that they're fighting, you know, literally fighting in court um, to prove that being a firefighter for X amount of time causes cancer. Like, oh, well, this is, you know, this cancer here. And, you know, was it was it this fire? Was it not this fire? When the reality is the common denominator for you, me and everyone else out there serving is fire or no fire you're still up every night for you know however many shifts a month and they know that shift work is carcinogenic so again it's kind of like smoke and mirrors when they start trying to prove the carcinogens in the fires because you know there are departments that just don't run many fires you know heavy sprinkled areas that are very safe but they're still up running calls you know every third day or you know whatever the shifts are and so i think that that's Hopefully something that we'll see as, as sleep medicine starts to get more and more popular is for people just to say, all right, we, you don't need to prove anything anymore. We know that, you know, we're not going to be breathing this stuff. We're going to wear our SCBAs and everything. We're going to do decon. But we're also understanding that if you're going to sign up to be a policeman, a firefighter, a dispatcher, you know, medic, doctor, nurse, that there are going to be this healthy uh, health effects from shift work. And so God forbid you get something bad like that. You don't have to try and pin down a carcinogen for proof because this is the most likely cause is the shift work anyway. Yeah. The more and more sort of, I'm sort of talking every sort of day now, you get an update of, um, you know, hazards that have been identified that we may come across. Um, over the past 12, 24 months, they've, we've now been all issued with, um, like P3 particle masks, and they're sort of looking at looking at the carcinogenic sides, and it's giving us more and more sort of things to deal with that and not knowledge around it. 
the shift the shifts is that there's so many shift systems in this country. Um, it, it's it's hard to sort of pin down, you know. Because is it in America? You you have is it twenty four on forty eight or something like that? Do it is yeah. So the, the average one is twenty four forty eight. I think the the right one, which is what the Northeast does, so New Jersey, New York, that kind of area. Is twenty four seventy two because that twenty four forty eight is a fifty six hour work week. So twenty four seventy two is a forty two hour work week. And what what I found from the the experts I've had on is the the twelve and twelve, you know, the eight eight eight, all the, all the different patterns um, that are shorter are very detrimental as well. I mean, we we see from the police force over here that it's clearly not doing them any favors either. But the twenty four for the fire service having a station, having a place to you know, to to do what we can do and having a bed to lie down if you're able to get some sleep um, is, I think, the right shift for us. But then you've got to have those days in between to allow you to come as close to back to normal as you can. The problem is with 2448, that's not enough time. And then you add a lot of the understaffing. Now these men and women are told they can't go home. I just went to visit one of my friends um, who got mandatory. So he's, his shift pattern, that put him on a 72-hour uh 72 hour shift he went home with his family for one day then he got deployed in a strike team on a wildfire and was gone for a few more days you know so you think about him driving home after all that the 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 danger it is to have someone behind the wheel especially in an emergency or trying to do drug calculations or or make a search it's chronically very dangerous for the firefighter and it's acutely very dangerous for us and the people that we're responding on I, I totally agree I totally agree. We talk, we talk a lot in this country about driving tired. You know, they tell you to take a break every two hours. Now, if you've been up all night on a on a house fire or, like you say, a wildfire, and then you get in your car at the end of that shift, you are literally driving home drunk. Uh, and that that is, I, t- I totally agree. You, you do need that sort of away time from work. The some of the shift systems we have here are. Um, like the two, the two two four system, which is usually like eight six days and six eight nights, so ten ten hour days, fifteen hour nights. That that day in between your nights, where you've been up all night and then you go home and then you go back to work, is is probably the hardest day of the shift. Because for those with family, if you go home and your kids are playing up or you, you can't, you're not able to get that, that rest in and then you go back on shift that night, if you tip out that night, you are effectively with 40 hours sleep deprivation as such. Yeah, no, it is. And it's just like, <laughs> excuse me, I, I, everyone listens to this podcast a lot. I'm flogging a dead horse. I know I am. But, you know, you take the special forces. I'm sure the SAS and SBS are the same. Um, you, you create an environment for these these members of the military to thrive. You know, you put all this money, all these resources in them, um, and so you do so. But then you take your men and women in the emergency services, and often we're creating a condition that works against them. You know, and it's not malicious; it's not anyone designed it that way. But you know, that our professions have changed a huge amount, especially in the last like thirty, forty years. Um, and you know, we're, we're just completely behind the eight ball now. And I think we have to, like we were saying before, front loading the initiative to save money down the line. 
and we're going to talk about mental health in a minute, which obviously is completely related to this. Um, you know, we have to understand now we're at this breaking point where we're, we're right now we are killing our first responders, you know, through through other means, through disease, and also by their own hand. And you know, we're we're burying them and throwing our arms up like, oh, what are we going to do? When the answer is actually there, you know, we know some of the reasons for this, and sleep is absolutely one of the strongest, you know, causes of many of these diseases physically and mentally and and i'm just praying here in america and obviously for you guys too that we can get some progressive forward-thinking people in the leadership positions that realize that investing in you now will pay dividends through your whole career then yeah and i i i I see that in some in some bosses over here because there's some brigades who've totally got rid of the beds really yeah, there's this like, uh, well, I won't, I won't name names. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> but, well, the, my last brigade, um, they got rid of their beds and expected you to rest on um, like lazy boy chairs. And there's there's other brigades up and down the country who think it's a good idea to get rid of the beds. Now, the service I'm in swear by their beds and there's, there is no plans and even the, the the management say it, it's counterproductive to get rid of them, and I think it's uh, you know it's that type of sort of management that leadership you need behind you to sort of say, you know, say to their mates down the road, what are you doing? Yeah, well, exactly, and, and the thing is, there's an ownership for us as well. You know, when we talk about this with sleep. You know, when we go home, we have to be responsible. We have to you know limit our alcohol. We have to go to bed on time, you know, and and try and get as much rest as we can on our off days. But that sleep hygiene, that environment to 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 maximize the efficiency or the effectiveness of your sleep, which is hard to do when you know the tones might go off at any moment. But there's an important, you know, side of that. And that means like a real bed, you know, and a, a mattress is actually comfortable and a temperature in the dorm of a certain, um, you know, 68 ish degrees in Fahrenheit and then you know no blinking lights in there all these things will be very conducive to to getting people quickly into sleep so if you get up you obviously you have to get up but to to have lazy boys you're probably going to be in a room with a tv or at least with ambient lights everywhere immediately you're reducing the chance of someone getting some actual rest and recovery while they're at the station yeah there's there's plenty of people out there and bosses that will argue that you don't need sleep but in it's i mean coming on to your first night if you generally don't sleep during the day you you then you're expected to stay up all night and then turn out and then you know the next day you might go home and get an hour's sleep and then you're back on shift it's 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 hard work speaking from all from my own personal experience it is hard work yeah, absolutely. And, and I could never do that um, preemptive sleep either. Be, oh, go take a nap now because we're probably going to be up all night. I, I just couldn't, you know. Some people can sleep anywhere. I, I'm one of the people who have to lie down. But yeah, and to say that you don't need sleep, look at look at whoever your favorite you know, sports person is. I guarantee you sleep is at the core. I know I had a guy on the, the show, Nick Littlehales. They call the sleep coach. And he's the sleep advisor to... Premier League teams, you know, Olympic teams, all these guys, and and there's a whole science behind it, you know. And a lot of our most famous athletes are known to sleep X amount of hours a night. 
So to say for that person to perform, they need sleep, but your police fire EMS don't need sleep again. It just doesn't make any sense. It's complete fiction. Yeah. It's, so, it's something that definitely needs looking at. Absolutely. Well, let's transition a little bit then. So with sleep deprivation, obviously, we know there's all the um, the acute effects, like you said, driving drunk um, or the cognition of being drunk. So you actually came to the station in my last apartment. That's where we met. Ironically, I didn't realize you know, that you were a part of something very pertinent. As we started talking, <laughs> we realized we were. Um, but mental health now i know that again sleep deprivation is definitely one of the contributing factors to mental ill health what was when did you first become aware of that within your department and then what made you actually try and become part of the solution um for, for myself I, I i just genuinely wasn't sleeping um that was for a whole host of issues um keeping myself busy you know as you do and that's when I sort of found these issues arising. And you noticed it in other people as well. You've got lads who, it's a, it's a common fact. In, in the, the UK fire service, a lot of people have part-time jobs. And you'd see them coming into work and they were absolutely wiped out. And you'd see that, you'd see the negative um, aspects of them. You'd see the, the mood of them change, their their eating habits had change. And that's where I, I saw it in myself and sort of said, right, no, we need to do more. I need to do more for myself. And that that's sort of how it how it sort of all started. <laughs> yeah. Now I know you've talked about you know if you're comfortable telling it again about that moment you had where you realized that you were further down that road than than you thought you were. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was somebody telling me um, my work was slipping. You, you, it was the you know the the normal signs that you see in everyone, and you think someone's not right here. But I didn't see them in myself. And it wasn't until someone said to me, you know, you need you need to sort of sort yourself out. You need to get get some some help or or something. And that that's where it sort of it, it started. Yeah, you talked about like stepping by a road and almost realizing that you had that flash <laughs> in your mind. Yeah, I, it it was it was I was stood there. It was like was at um, the shops and I come out and it it was it was weird. It just sort of crossed my mind that if I stepped out now, it, it'd be okay. And it was that took me back to a it really took me back a bit to sort of stand there and go, what just happened. It was like it was an instant flash in in your mind, and and that's that that was the sort of point where it needed to be changed. Yeah, and that's something I've talked about a few times. When you take a step back, everything in our biological programming wants us to thrive, wants us to survive, reproduce, you know, raise our kids. And I've, I've mentioned this a few times now, but. And that's, I think, that what's misunderstood is that that's how dangerous this changing of of the the brain and the thoughts becomes. That it will push against every kind of cell in your body, and and create that idea that ending it is the right way. When we all know that 
you know, a healthy mind is is going to want to stay. It's going to want to, you know, protect their kids, be with their wife. And that's what's so terrifying, you know, whether it's, you know, parts of it from trauma, childhood trauma, you know, things that we've seen on our job, sleep deprivation, um, you know, all those areas, but it creates this absolute maelstrom in the mind that those thoughts actually seem like a legitimate, not just option, like the best option. This is what I should do today. And it's, I think people then turn around and go, oh, they were a coward. They just took their own life. It's like, no, you don't understand. They got to that point. They were so uh, twisted in their mind um, because of all these elements that they actually believed that they were a burden to their family and planet Earth would be better off without them, which we or everyone else around knows is completely the opposite. But that's how powerful all these influences, you know, the sleep and the stress and the, the trauma are on the brain. That's how malleable it is that it can actually be twisted to believe something as crazy, for lack of a better term, as you are a burden to the world. That's it. It, it, was, it is just these, it was a crazy thought that, you know, been, I can't remember what I've been into that. It was just a normal day type thing. And, and you know, you sort of come out and you cross the road to get in your car and it's like, you see a car coming, it's like, well, well what if? And that was, it's, it's strange. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not that, that's a common thought. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I and mean, the thing is, thank goodness you had everything else in place where you had the strength to pull yourself back. But take, you know, relationship failing or what happens a lot of times is, is alcohol. That resistance, that last little, you know, chain lick fence in your mind of resistance you start drinking, that falls down, and now it's like, all right, well, then why not? Let's do it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. All right. So then, so you had that realization. So what was your personal journey to, you know, understanding and then and then strengthening your mind? Uh, so, so from that, it, it became, it was talking more. Um, for me, it was just talking to others and learning, you know, that I'm not here on my own. Um, and that's that's where it sort of it sort of went on for me, and that's uh, from that I you know I ended up going to um, Park Run, which is a local five um, k leader every week, and that got me into my running, and that was that was a sort of turning point. You know, it, it's just having something else to sort of take your mind away, um, talking to people. You know, you find out that. You're not on your own. The problems that you're going through, you, you know, a problem shared is, you know, halved. And it, it was it was that sort of aspect of, of feeling not alone that helped. Now, once you kind of, and we'll talk about the Arbor Light in a moment, once you became more of a figure of bringing this out um, to the forefront, did you find like many of us do that actually way more people were hurting than you realized yeah yeah and that that's that's what i'm saying when you when you tell somebody you've got i mean you can walk into any room and sit around the group table and say right you know just you could quite openly say i've got depression and i can guarantee you four or five people will say do you know what so have i or i know somebody my mum, my dad my brother my sister you know, it, it's it's more common than than you think. 
I've, I've, at work, I've spoke about um, traumatic incidents that I've not been happy with. And although you sit around the table, when your gaffer says, right, is everyone happy? Does anyone need any help? Everyone will go, no, no, no. A few days later, you sit around the table and say, do you know what, that job the other day didn't, I didn't sit well, well with me that one. You would get two or three saying, do you know what, yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. I'm like, yeah, I think we need to mention that. Or, right, okay, yeah, but this is what happens. And, you know, you're not, it is more common than you actually think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's that that kind of, facade that everyone else is okay you know you look at i've talked about this a few times some of the guys i know that struggled the most were the ones that physically were you know that kind of alpha male whether they truly were or not is, is you know it's irrelevant but you know the 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 muscles the tattoos the shaved head you know and and so you look at our peers in your crew and you're like well everyone else seems to be doing okay why am i the weak one, you know, in your mind. And like you said, but when you put yourself out there and you're vulnerable and you're like, you know, this, this call kind of shook me a little bit and, and you kind of open the door then, then behind closed doors with people that you trust, people really kind of go, actually, I'm glad you said that because here's what I'm going through, you know, and, and it's amazing. I think even it's even worse now we have this kind of social media environment that we're in where everyone pretends to be someone they're not, um, you know, the, we have to pull that curtain down and be like, look, you know, here, here's me being vulnerable first, but drop that facade. None of us are, are, you know, superheroes. We're not, we're human beings doing an extraordinary job, you know, and a job that I know we both love, but it doesn't make us special. We just signed up to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's it. You know, it doesn't matter who you are um, or what way you've come from or it's, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, top of the food chain or the bottom. You will, at some point, have have issues where you need to talk to somebody. And it's it's a, it's a strange sort of because now I find myself talking to like um, the big bosses and and sort of saying to them, "Are you all right? You know, how are you?" Whereas you'll know in your job, if big boss came down, they'll come de- coming down for a reason. Now, now they come for a brew. Yeah, that's brilliant, though. That's brilliant. That's what it should be. And, and that's, you know, the, the fire department of yesteryear that I think we still have, you know, it just it, some areas get lost, is a group of men and women sitting around a table talking. And that's no different than counseling. It's no different than what you and I are doing right now. But it's so easy to get pulled into your smartphone or believe the facade of what a man or a woman should do and, you know, never cry and all that bullshit. But the, the answer is so simple just sitting down and communicating and offloading some of the pretty horrendous stuff that we see. Yeah. And I, I think in, I think as, as a society in the UK, we've, you know, we, we used to go down to the pub, you know, after work, everyone would go down the pub for one or two and they'd have the moan about whatever's going on at home or with each other or what's happened at work. And then they'd go home and, you know, they'd be happy. But because we've become that, that busy in society now we don't have that time to sit down and go to the pub and have have that hour moan with your friends and then you're taking it home and you sat with it and then you know you go back to work next day and you've still got it with you and then something else happens and it, it we've we've become that we've become too busy to look after ourselves in some aspects 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of uh, of talking to people, so again, here, one of the, I think the issues that we're really having now, I hope that the mental health message is really starting to get out there. The stigma is starting to be broken down, but it's hard to tell when you, you're kind of in an echo chamber. Like, you know, my, my circle is people that are physical and mental health advocates. So I hope it's expanding even further out, but, um, is finding the right counselor, you know, and the problem that we have here again is someone could say, Oh, Steve is a great counselor. He's in town. But again, sadly, Steve isn't in your insurance network. So you can't see Steve unless you pay out of pocket with, uh, with you guys. Is that once again, NHS? So all, all the counselors are in the network. So yeah, you've got, um, well, within, within Lanksfire, we've got access to a, um, telephone counsellor if we need to through the employee assistance program which is provided by the service we've also got um, nhs or you can go private in this country to find the right one so you've got you've you've got an, an access to quite to a lot of of counsellors if you need to okay now so do you guys because one area and i heard this again for the umpteenth time just the other day of a firefighter going to a counselor and telling their story and the counselors in tears and, you know, completely useless. They, they obviously have no idea what we do. Do you guys find it easy to find the kind of counselor that's used to dealing with first responders and military? Yeah, there, there, there are specific counselors available. And the, ser- the, the service I'm in now currently uh, will provide a list of them. Um, the, the employee assistance program is, it's done. The counsellors there are aware of the fire service, and the I mean, it, there are pe- there are counsellors out there. Sometimes you you can't find the right counsellor. Some you will you may go through five or six before you you find the right person to talk to. Um, what we what we do provide in the fire service over here, and it's it's slowly being rolled out throughout all services, is what we call a trim process which is uh, trauma risk intervention management. This originally stemmed from the military. Um, and what it is, it's, it's like a peer supporting um, sort of meeting. So if you, went for, if you went to a traumatic incident, you may contact the TRIM team. They will say, okay, we've got so-and-so like myself who's, who's trained. Would you want to, talk, you want to have a comp lab with him? So you have that, you know, you, it's more like a friendly chat with somebody that's not on your station. And that that's like a, a pre sort of, so you're not on your own. You do know there's, there's, your mates are there. But it sort of also gives you, sometimes it's that initial, you know, conversation you need before you, be, well, not to get you sort of, um, not requiring counselling, but if you go to a counsellor first off and say, you know, this happened, that happened, that happened, you know, you could feel like you wasted your first counselling session as such. Does that yeah. make sense? No, it does. It does. Where, that- whereas having, having sort of the trim practitioners in place, it allows it allows a person to vent whatever they've got going on in a totally confidential environment. And then if, if they feel they need counselling after that, they've got the they've got the, the the stones ready to 
you know, the, all their stones are in order, ready to throw as such. Yeah, and I think that's the same kind of model that they're trying to hear. But again, this is so Trim coming from the military. Is this a, a fire department or fire brigade wide initiative then? It's a couple of services have taken it on board. Okay. There's a couple of models of uh, various models of, of that sort of um, setup going around the country. So it de- depending on what the, that mo- what model that service has chosen will be depending on what they they've picked for their service. Gotcha. So it seems to be a very good model here. Sadly, more often than not, it's the firefighters union, um, the benevolent kind of part of the union that funds it. So, you know, sometimes I'm sure there are departments out here that fund it from the department, but I know uh, of a very famous one here that has deployed to, to Vegas and Parkland and, you know, all these other tragedies that actually is from a department but is not funded or supported by that department which is insanity so um but you guys obviously are doing it for the department itself but i know that they are having very good results with that model what from you guys implementing this how have your your results been it's been taken up really well and now more and more firefighters are coming forward and saying look can i have a trim session which you'll know yourself going back five years was unheard of you know, you would never get a firefight putting their hand up going, do you know what, I need a chat, I don't feel well. Um, so I think it's it's having a massive impact. And the, it's having that, that morale booster, knowing that people are there to listen to them within their own service. And because it's paid for by the service and it's not monitored by the service, it seems to have that more of a, you know, that, that sort of bonus to firefighters. Because you'll find you, a lot of stress issues come from firefighters and, and gripes against the job. But if, the, if they've got something there to, to sort of use that's provided by the job but not monitored by the job, so the job have no control over it, they, they, they are happy to take it up. And I, it's, re- it's a really good sort of model and how they've done it because more and more people are getting the help that, that you know they would usually bottle it up and say you know i'm all right yeah and just what what you said about giving you guys those tools but then stepping away from it as an employer i think it's very important because i've seen the opposite side um in florida at the moment that they're kind of pursuing legislation because i think and i'm i don't want to misquote i'm not well read in this but there's something to the tune of if a department provides peer support they can basically force the peer support member to tell them what this what their peer said which obviously is the complete opposite of (laughs) of you know the environment that you need if someone's going to pull their heart out so that's great to hear that they are giving you those tools and then stepping the hell away and letting you just you know have the confident confidentiality that you that you need, you know, because I mean, otherwise it's it's not it's never going to work if it's going to be monitored by someone. Yeah, and that that's it. You know, some for 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 blokes, it's hard to open up, and when you do open up, you don't want it going around your department while you've opened up. So it has to be in in this country. You have to keep it one hundred and ten percent confidential, just so people trust the system, so people trust that they can open up. Or, you know, 
it will all fall down. As soon as that's broken, it'll all fall down and we go back to square one where people will not open up. They won't tell you when they're not okay. Exactly. Just destroy the very thing you created. Yeah. All right. Well, then, so I want to transition to, you know, worst worst case. We're going to get to our blue light. And obviously that was kind of spurned by the mental health crisis. We in America now kind of realized now finally, thank God, uh, suicides are actually being acknowledged and, you know, annotated, if you like. That's not even counting the accidental opiate overdoses, the alcoholism, and all these other areas that are all completely embedded in that mental health crisis that we're in. But suicides alone, we lose more men and women now to suicide than line of duty death. So line of duty death is everything that's killed a firefighter within 24 hours of their shift, basically, or on shift. Um, so what was the British fire services perspective or emergency service perspective, you know, what were you seeing as far as suicide in the UK and then kind of lead me through to the the founding of our blue light? So uh, at the time I was, I was in a service where we were roughly having one firefighter suicide a year. Um, in one year there was three and it just got to the point where it was like, hang on, why are we not doing anything? What, what, how many does it have to be before somebody stands and stands up and go, hang on, we've had, we've had nearly six of our, it was six of our crew, our family take their own lives. What is going on? And, and that's, that is just in my service across, across the service. You were constantly seeing, um, on, on social media thoughts going out to ambulance workers, police officers who you know, taking their own lives. And it, it's, it was, it's wrong as <laughs> such. And it's, I mean, over the past few years, it's slowly declined from what I've seen, but it's, unfortunately, it's still happening, but at a sl- lot slower rate, I, I do believe. So what, what, uh, sp- um, let me try and rephrase this so I can spit more words out. From seeing that, how was the concept of our blue light um, developed, and how how did you join that group? So, I mean, our blue light it was formed by a, um, a couple of paramedics who they they attended a a very tragic accident, a very tragic incident, um, and one of them couldn't deal with it. He really struggled. So he basically sent that that text to his mate saying, you know, can give us a lift. I'm really struggling here. Um, and from that, they they started raising the awareness in the ambulance service. Um, at the time, I, I was re- I was doing the same in the fire service, and along with another firefighter, Mark, um, we got our heads together and, and sort of approached um, the paramedics and sort of said, like, come on. It's it's a lot bigger than you two, and it's a lot bigger than us us four. It needs it needs to we could take this further. Um, so after a couple of sort of get-togethers and a couple of runs and and various walks, it it people were just coming out of the woodwork. It was it was massive. People were you know standing up saying can I get involved because either my service isn't doing enough or I don't feel I can talk to my service or, you know, and it, it, that's, that's basically how 
where our blue light came from, from a text message. <laughs> Brilliant. So then tell me about the actual, you know, relay of our, our blue light. So, um, about two year, two or three years ago, we, the, um, because there was that much interest in it and people wanted to get involved, they, the, with the, a torch was designed, um, a local guy from Blackburn, which is a small um, sort of industrial town in central Lancashire, um, made this, this, this metal sort of Olympic style torch. And the idea was just to sort of pass it around services and get people talking about mental health. When it first set off, the the interest, um, the media interest took off. It we found that it you know we weren't just a couple of people at the bottom of the pile talking about mental health. We had you, you, there was um, the the Duchess and the and the um, the princes got involved. The um, heads of organisation got involved. And to the point we set this this torch off on by somebody running it to the lifeboat station. The lifeboat then took it over to Southport where Merseyside had closed off roads for for a procession for it. And it just it went strength to strength from there. And it's it's good in the fact in the way that it's got it's allowing sort of in, in the fire service, allowing firefighters to talk to the top end, top bosses, you know, the top offices saying, this is what's affecting us. And and they're actually, you do feel like they're actually listening. And it's it seems to open a lot of doors into, into you know, allowing people to, to speak freely about their mental health. Yeah, and it's the prisons as well, is that right? Yeah, so now um, we've, from that, we, we we highlight the issue that NHS staff are in the same boat. We've got prison services in the same boat. You know, you're talking all your public sector workers are, are, are expected to do the extraordinary job that most people won't do and don't even think about. And we're in that sort of special club where we see stuff that, a lot of people will never see, and we between us we can we've got that sort of network now. We can talk about it. You know, we're not we're all sort of as one family. It doesn't matter what industry you're from, whether you're from the prison service or or the fire service. You can talk to each other about about the same issues as such. Yeah, and there are so many common denominators. Like the prisons are something that you know I've really kind of thought about more in depth recently but you think about the way we do prisons in in america we do prisons in in england you know it's basically lock people away and no one takes a moment to think about technically the prison staff are also locked away they're not seeing light you know they're obviously there's i mean stress the 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 prisoner to, to guard ratio is terrifying we've, we've you know we've all seen the youtube videos of you know when someone gets overrun but yeah, I mean, those dispatchers, another one that people don't think about, they're in, you know, a dark room for 12 hours and then they leave. They're probably dark or about to go dark, you know. So there's, there's all these elements again. We're talking about setting people up for success 
where the environment is really up against these people and and they're getting you know not only the mental health issues but you know the weight gain and 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 the the pressure on the heart and i mean there's so many other elements too but to bring all those in and i love the fact that life the lifeboat is there as well um shows that you are you're all part of that same team it doesn't matter what color your your sweatshirt is or what stripes you got on your shoulder that you're all those men and women that have said i will leave my family for x amount of hours you know i will put myself you know in danger to protect the community and my whole thing is because these men and women are doing that all i ask is that we create an environment for them to thrive not an environment to destroy their their bodies and their minds yeah yeah and i, t- I totally agree I, my my heart goes out to the, the staff that also support us you know you talk about the you call handlers they they take that call from the minute they dial 999 or 9911 and they're there until we take that phone off them and you know they they have to listen to that whole thing and then they're just expected to put the phone down and pick up the next one and i i do i really feel for them and that that's that's where we need to support the these people if if it's not our frontline staff we have to support the support staff in you know the abuse nhs staff get the abuse prison staff get and then they're expected to go home you know, it's that's where you, you, your issues come from because if you've had a bad day at work, you don't want to be taking that home to your family. No, no exactly. And I don't know if you've ever seen, do you ever watch Vice, the TV channel? No, I don't know. Okay, it's, 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 it seems to be prevalent here, but there was a, a Vice a special on a prison in Norway and I had the governor on. Again, I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but going back to changing something from the roots like the way they do prisons in this particular one is this is an island off north of uh, oslo but they live in a community probably looks just the same as you where you're living now or where i'm living but they're prisoners they've got no freedom they've had it taken away but they have to cook together clean together go to work you know they function as humans humans that have made a mistake some of which have even killed but these aren't like the sociopaths that have mowed down a camp full of kids but you know crime of passion or drug deal gone wrong or whatever it was does not make it right but in this particular one the guards don't have weapons they haven't had any prisoner on prisoner violence for i mean years literally and so this entire environment is geared towards rehabilitation you know, so that when these people and they will move out of this prison back to next door to you and your kids, that they have given all the tools they need to be a functioning member of society. They've got a trade to bring back. You know, they've they've got all these things. Um, another guest I have was a guy from Portugal that decriminalized drugs. We talked about at the beginning. So when drugs are now legal, then when an addict is is brought in, they can be funneled into an addiction treatment program rather than be made a prisoner, thrown in prison, and there's another body for that prison guard to have to watch out for and ultimately watch their back from, you know? So we can we can create in things in our culture that not only make our regular civilians, you know, safer, 
but also our first responders and, you know, prison guards and everyone else create an environment that makes it better for them as well. So, but again, that takes a progressive forward thinking person who can swallow their ego and go, you know what? I think Norway's doing this better. I think Portugal's doing this better. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does often take, like you say, it does take that person to stand up and go, I've been doing it wrong for so long. Let's change it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that really made me kind of put a, a slide rule on it, if you like, for me was when I learned how many people we had in prison in America in the 70s versus how many we have now. In the 70s, we had about 350,000. Right now, we're about 2.3 million. So that is obviously way, way, way in excess of the population growth. So, you know, that's your, you know, 50-year <laughs> study of is it working? Clearly, it's not working, you know, so it's time to change it. It's a, it's a common fact in the UK. The, the prison population is overcrowded. There, there aren't enough prisons for, for the people. And at the, I do believe, I can't, I don't, don't take me for fact on this one, but I do believe there's a high rate of, Reoffenders once they come out, they reoffend and end up going back. And it, you know, it's there is although there's a lot of work being done, there's there's not enough work being done. Does that, if that, uh, don't sound too harsh? No, it's true. It's true, and that's the thing. You you have when they're in prison, you have that. You have a captive audience. Then you have these people where you can do some incredible things. And obviously, there are people in prisons all over this country, the UK doing incredible things but the the system that they work in is is not working and and the problem is when when they build more prisons over here they have to fill those prisons <laughs> you know it's just it's economics and the goal should be anywhere where like my prisons are too full should never be to build another prison it should be all right well how can we stop people offending you know and i think we've got it we got it backwards and of you know people might say well it's easy for you to say sitting there and it is i'm sitting at a desk right now talking to you know brother firefighter in england but if enough of us question it maybe we'll actually start looking at it differently the same way as portugal did and hopefully the uk is getting ready to do so you know you every every human being that's born into this world aside from those ones that have these just crazy chemical imbalances in their brain where they have true genetic psychoses the other 99 point whatever percent Start off as little toddlers running around, finding joy in everything. And then it's up to what what we're brought up in to whether we become a functioning member of society or, or a sociopath. And we can do all these things to create an environment where those kids have the best, best chance of becoming just another member of the productive side of society. And then we save our law enforcement and prisons for the, the real shitbags of the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's a strange, it's a strange sort of how we've got to this point in 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 the world. I'm hoping, like everything else, it goes around in a circle and goes back to the way it used to be. Yeah, I think it will. I mean, look at food. You know, our our great grandparents. You know, especially growing up in England. You know, you you had farms in yeah. your, your village, you know, and you go to the green grocer and you get your fruit and vegetables and you go to the butcher <laughs> and you get local meat. And then it became this industrialized, especially not so much in the UK, but way more so here in, in America where 
one farm wants to grow the corn for everyone, you know, and it and it's yeah. just it, the answer is there. We just have to go back in time, basically, to fix a lot of our nutritional and health problems here in the U.S. Yeah, it's it's the same here. You know, we've we've gone for how many? You know, we've go back and we've had. You've seen an increase in fast food shops. You've seen an increase in McDonald's, KFC. But ultimately, now we're looking the the more healthier end of society. Looking at your vegan options, your vegetarian, just like our you know our grandparents used to do, going back forty years. You know, have your own little allotment at the bottom of the garden. You go and eat what was there, and that, that's that's what my nan used to do, and then that's what was was now doing in today's life. Yeah, no, I think it's it's great to see there is a paradigm shift. Like people, I think, with the internet, when it first came out, it was all, you know, puppy videos and, you know, all this, <laughs> this craziness. But I think, I really do think this last couple of years, people are really starting to use the internet um, much more positively. And I think that they're realizing that we can become very well informed. We've now learned of which online platforms are good and which are just you know narcissistic platforms but i think people are getting it now and they're understanding that our food is killing us and you don't need to be on these drugs for the rest of your life and all these these kind of areas so and you see like you said you see the mcdonald's being forced to change and people when we understand that we run the country we just chose that person at the top and I think Britain and, and America right now, we've both been struggling to find a decent human being to represent our nation from whatever side, left or right. We just, you know, <laughs> those systems are kind of fucked, let's be honest. But um, but realizing that we, you know, we the people, we're, we're the ones that really do it. And if enough of us say, I don't want to buy a McDonald's, I'm not going to buy your blood pressure pills anymore. I'm, I'm going to go, you know, eat properly and go to the gym instead. You will change the entire culture of a nation. And I think when we realize that we have that strength, that's when we, the average person, the community will start using that power and, and making the change ourselves. Yeah. And that, that's why I like what, what I do. This is why I talk to people and it's, I like what you do with the, these podcasts. You know, we are, if we can inspire one person to do something or speak up and say they're not okay, that's, that's where the change starts. And it, uh, like I say, I'm quite proud in the service I work in. You, the, the the chief has an open door policy. He will quite happily, you know, you ask him, can I have a brew here? He'll say, you know, okay, fit in. Let's have a brew. And I, and I do, I like that sort of, that, that theory that together we can make that difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we forget as firefighters how um respected we are. We're still people. None of us are infallible, but as a profession, we work in a, in a career that most people look up to. So not only can we change it for our fellow first responders, we can also be a, a great beacon, you know, like the our blue light concept for everyone else there because i've had people yeah. on here that are rangers that are you know sas navy seals all these and they talk about this mental health stuff so then your average bloke for example who believe the whole bullshit of oh men don't cry and then they hear a navy seal in tears talking about something he saw then that helps reprogram what they've been taught another area that we were taught that was wrong and that you know oh 
it's okay to cry. You know, it's okay to be affected by the things that you've seen. It's okay to be depressed after, you know, a divorce, whatever it is, but you can then grow from it and become even stronger. Yeah. And, and you, if you can talk about it with your mates and they, they can talk back to you about it, you know, you've got that better understanding and they can, they can help you. You know, it's, it's having, it's, it's, it's like taking your car to a mechanic. You know, you take it to someone who knows, who know, who can openly tell you what's going on with your car. Whereas if you, if you, if your mates are there and open to you and say, you know what, I've been through a divorce. It, this is where it got me. You know, I was drinking it, but I got over it doing this. You know, and you can, you can openly say to him, do you know what, I'm, I'm in your shoes now. What do I do? And that's, that's, you know, that's what blokes need to sort of realize. We need to be able to, sort of stand up and say i'm not okay what do i do yeah and just understand it would be no different than i tweak my back no one has any any shame in saying i i, I tweak my back it's no, no. Di- it's the same with your brain you know it's the same with your mind your, your soul your spirit however you want to describe it and you know the answer is with, with people that you know whether they whether they talk to their crew or whether they actually go to counseling that it's also um a preventative measure no different. I, I I compare it to the chiropractor. I see a chiropractor every month just to have, well, like a tune-up, you know, and it's the same with the mental health side. Even if you're doing well, there's no shame in visiting a counselor, talking to your peer member, you know, your crew, whatever it is, so that you're you're buffering that system then and, and keeping it strong. Because the growth you get from going through trauma and then addressing it and talking through it and then coming out the other side is you are even more resilient then and then you're more able to help other people too. That's very true. Right. Well, I think we should transition to some closing questions so I can let you go and we'll find out what else is going on in London. Um, so the first question I love to to ask is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um. I don't know really. Um, see, I'm not much of a reader. I tend to sort of, I'm more of a a podcast or a, or a YouTube. Um, you know, all these self help, um, inspiring videos. See, I, I I like hearing good stories. You know, the positive, seeing that in in the world. That's that's the that's the thing that helps me. Brilliant. What's some of the podcasts that you like? Um, this one. <laughs> Good answer. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm real. I do like um, Ricky Gervais's. Oh, really? Yeah, he's he's quite a bit. He's sort of mixed mixed emotions, but from from some of the stuff he comes out with, he, he's quite relevant. Um. Yeah. But uh, recently, unfortunately, because the the job I'm in, I've been listening quite a lot to the uh, the the Grenfell stuff, and you know, just to try and get an understanding of that. Well, educate us. So here we are sitting in in America. Obviously, most of us in the fire service should at least know the building, the you know, the number of fatalities. Um, and you know, I know that members of the fire service, especially the London Fire Brigade, can't say so much, but. What are some of the the kind of cliff notes that you can tell us on where that investigation is so far? 
the the report is out, um, and it it's it basically highlights a number of failings across the board, um, from the construction to the the actual day, you know, of the fire. So there's 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 a lot of learning aspects there for everybody in, who was involved in that incident from start to finish. The 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 fire safety laws across the UK will undoubtedly che- um, have to change. This is my own personal view. I've got building regulations will have to change. The the way fire services operate, there's going to have to be some work there. But it's it's like anything. We we learn from the these bad incidents. You know we. We don't, we can't foresee the future, but we learn from previous experiences. Unfortunately, this was this was a, a very tragic incident that, in my opinion, shouldn't have happened. Not in today's society. The 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 benefits from it is we should learn, and it should never happen again. I've talked about this before. That's the only way you can honour the dead. You know, whether it's a firefighter that was killed or civilians, you know, that passed away in this incident is it's too late. You know, like you said, they're gone. But there are also, you know, departments, organizations that would sweep it under the rug. And that is a complete disgrace to the people that lost. So the least we can do, like you said, is learn from it, adapt, train and make sure it doesn't happen again. So I couldn't agree with you more. My 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 thoughts go out to. The, the firefighters and the emergency services on the night because the, the, the report slated them. And, you know, all I saw on that night was was them doing whatever they could do for those people. Yeah. I remember seeing the, 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 the Inferno and then you had the aerial, which I'm assuming if it's comparable to what we have here, you know, was 30 foot, I mean, sorry, 30 meters-ish. And then they're like, you know, why? Why aren't they? Why don't they have bigger ladders? <laughs> it's about as big as they come, you know. You, a certain you know height, you can't put a fire out with with an aerial anymore. But I mean, it just it was just a an inferno that ran up so many floors, and um, it just uh, it looked like an absolute nightmare as a firefighter to work out where you'd even begin to to extinguish it. Yeah, I I just it's not a job I'd like to ever go on, um, and I just. For me personally, I would say a massive thank you for the efforts they put in, yeah. because that that was that was an extraordinary. That was the incident you you could only ever dream of. Yeah, I'd love to get someone from there one day, but again, I know the gag order was pretty strong, and it's probably going to have to be someone that's retired, you know, that was on it. <laughs> but um, you know, to to truly get the the inside story, and and, and again, let us learn. You know, because the problem with a gag order, and I know this is the case with the pulse shooting right now in Orlando here, is no one can learn from it. You shut everyone yeah. down, you know. So I get that you're investigating, but you should already be putting that information out so that people can not make the same mistake. Yeah. All right. So the same question then. Um, uh, uh, start with a documentary. Is there a documentary that you love? No, I don't know, really. Um. Documentaries, I just tend to watch. If I'm flicking through the TV guide and there's, there is something on, you know, it, it, I do I do watch. <laughs> it's, 
as sad as it sounds, I watch a lot of the blue light ones, you know, like um, um, Inside Met Police and, you know, all, all that type of documentaries. Yeah. Yeah, they're always interesting. Definitely. But I think that, that that's the type of person I am. You know, I've I was I've always been interested in, in the emergency services. I've my, all my working life I've been in the emergency service, so it's 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 sort of that's my my bag as such. Brilliant. All right, what about a movie, a film? Oh, right, films. <laughs> I've got a, a very taste in films. All right, let's do it. <laughs> um Probably one of my favourites is Snatch. Um, Love that film. But, of course, you've got the Rockies in there. They've got to be in there. They're, they're definitely in the top ten. Um, I'm quite partial to to the odd Disney one as well. Really? Any particular ones that pop to mind or spring to mind? Uh, Lion King's my favourite. That's a good film. Um but yeah, the the classics as well, you know, like E.T. and Gremlins. You you can't you can't sort of turn them off if they're, if they're ever on. No. Now, how old are you now? <laughs> I'm 37. Okay, you're a little bit younger than me. Yeah, because E.T. I mean that was literally the, you know, what we go see in the cinema back then. So, Back yeah. to the Future, Karate Kid. It was pretty. Yeah. Pretty good era to grow up in, actually. It was. Yeah, some br- <laughs> brilliant films on. <laughs> All right, so the next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military and associated professions of the world? There's um, there's quite a few. Um, you've got quite, there's quite a few influential people in, in the services. Um, there's um, a gent called Andy Elwood um, who does Andy's Man Club around the UK. Um, he is fantastic. He, he's um, Andy was uh, unfortunately took his own life, and his brother-in-law Luke. Oh, sorry, hang on, wrong person. No, that's me. Gone. Um, there's Andy's Man Club, um, which was set up by Luke Ambler, which was Andy's brother-in-law, um, and basically he set up a. He gave the tools to 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 blokes to go and have their own sort of peer support counseling sessions around the UK. Um he's he's done some fantastic work. You've got Andy Elwood was was a he served in the military. He was then, if I've got this in the right order, paramedic, search and rescue, coast guard, helicopter winchman. Um and he 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 talks about his experiences and he's fantastic. Okay, so Andy Elwood uh, is different from Andy's Man Club. Yeah, so okay. Andy Elwood. Gotcha. Right. Is is the paramedic, um, military, search and rescue. You've got uh, Luke Ambler, which is the one who set up Andy's Man Club around the UK, which is such a simple concept that could be rolled out anywhere. It is absolutely fantastic. They've got, um, but I mean, you've got if if you if you want. The fire service, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, you know, big him up too much, but um, the Justin Johnson, Lank's fire chief, he's heading up the fire fit for the fire service. Oh, okay. So he's 
he's he's head of the steering group for the National Fire Chiefs Council. So the work he's doing will hopefully be rolled across out across the UK shortly. Um, down in you know London Ambulance Service, you've got a lady called Jules Lockett. She she is um, excellent. She's absolutely fantastic to talk to. Um, she does a lot with the LGBT in London Ambulance Service and um, health and wellbeing. There's, 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 uh, there is really hundreds of people you could talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the funny thing. So, um, you know, being British, I really wanted to get more people from from the UK, but it, it's a different culture over there. Like here, I think we're just more open, you know, so... Um, you know, when I've approached, people have, have jumped jumped at it once they see what the project is. But I found it harder in England. I think it's just, you know, people just don't want to talk about themselves as much there. And I'm not saying that people love talking about themselves here, but they're just more willing to tell their story. Um, so, you know, I've been in connection with some firefighters and then they kind of just ghosted me after that so i'm like all right well never mind then and some of them written books and everything but um so yeah i mean i I would love to to get more british guests because the more international perspectives you get a the more we realize how many things we've got in common but then b just like with portugal and norway these other ideas start coming in you're like well shit that's a great way of doing it i'd never thought of that before but if we if we just you know have like if you just had nothing but british firefighters then you're all in the same kind of system the chances of that is going to be smaller but this i love this this international thing and i've had firefighters from multiple countries now but but yeah being british it's kind of it's it's amazed me how hard it is to get my fellow brits on so so i'd love to connect with all the people you told me we're still a bit behind the times you know it's it's only sort of the these past few years where we've been more open about our our feelings our ourselves you see, you see this by, you know, you can see this in the in the the um, pride events. More and more people are attending them. They're becoming the, a big thing because it's, you know, with, with that, we're coming over the, we're we're accepting all these different communities into our society now. Whereas go back in the UK ten years, and it was, you know, we had this, we were segregated. We had our own little communities where we won't talk to each other. And now, you know, I do feel like we're in that sort of time where we, we are behind the US. We're behind a few fewer countries, but we're catching up. <laughs> yeah. And, and ahead in some areas, you know what I mean? But that's the thing is we all have things we're doing well and things that we're, you know, maybe could could improve on. You know, and I think that yeah. you know, what we're talking about at the beginning of this conversation with that sense of community my God, you know, our our basically grandparents and parents' generation embodied that when they yeah. were being bombed by the Nazis, you know, and, and that community yeah. that came out of World War II in, in, in the Blitz is absolutely incredible. But then fast forward, you know, a couple of generations and now, of course, we don't want a war just to make us just start being nice to each other. No, but no, there no. it was. And, I've, and I talk about this and, and, and let's pick on England too. So, I talk about how crazy it is that we fought side by side with all these different cultures and creeds and the women took over the men's roles at home in America while the men went off and fought. Um, 
And yet the 1950s was some of the most backwards Victorian mentality era that we ever had. And you look at England, it was the same. You know, yeah. we had the Windrush yeah. come over. That was, you know, like the, the, some of our most racist years when we were, yeah. you know, when we had Gurkhas fighting alongside us proudly. And yet we're also understanding why black people can't, you know, it's, I mean, it's just insane. We had Sikh spitfire fighters, but then now we're throwing, you know, slander at people from India and Pakistan again. I mean, it just, I don't, I don't understand that, but I think, I hope that we're now at the point where we're going back to maybe modeling the true heroes, which is the the war generation. I, I hope so. I do hope so. But it, it does seem a bit backwards, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get there hopefully one day. Yeah. Well, I think it takes you know, the discussion like this. You know, people people are having intelligent conversations now. You know, and, and with, you know whether ever it's sexual orientation or religion or whatever it is, we need to stop looking at the extremists of all these areas and realizing that most of us live in this very sensible middle ground where. It's okay to disagree with someone or not share the same principles, but ultimately we're just men and women that want to live a good life, watch our kids grow up, and and that's it. So I think yeah. uh, I think we are, you know, it's up to us to force that change back to, you know, to a a, a culture that was connected and therefore it almost eradicate mental health or mental ill health again because we all feel like we're part of something. That that's it. It's that having that feel feeling of inclusion. Can, can can massively impact your mental health. If we if we didn't if we agreed with everything everyone said, we would never learn anything. We wouldn't develop. We won't progress. You know, it's you need to have that disagreement to to figure out. Hang on, are we doing this right? Are we doing this wrong? Can we do it better? And and that you know, it, it could. The, what is it called? Con- constructive criticism. You know, we need it from time to time. Yeah. And then understanding that, you know, things evolve too. Like what was yeah. absolutely, what was right five years ago may not be right now, but that's okay. Back in, yeah. you know, 2014, that was what we thought, but with all the information we had, well, now this has come out. Now we, it's okay to change your mind. That's not being wishy-washy. That's just, you know, progress. I heard, I heard a great, someone said a great phase the other day. He says, I don't like change. But I don't like the way it is either. Yeah, they use that same expression for the fire service here. <laughs> the is, I forget the uh, yeah the two things uh, the fire, American firefighters don't like change in the way it is. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So last question before we talk about where we can find you and obviously where where we can find our blue light as well. Um, okay. What do you do to decompress? So for me, it's um, meditation as such. So. For me, I like going to the gym. I like the sauna, the pool, and then that's that's my way of relaxing. Brilliant. You have any specific men, uh, meditation practice, or is it more just deep breathing? Deep breathing, um, relaxing music. Sometimes I just lay on the bed and listen to listen to um, calming music, and that that's that's just my way of of relaxing. Brilliant. Now, I want to talk about our blue light and where you can find it, but are you going to be doing the uh, the relay again, or is that a one-time thing? No, no, no. The relay is going ahead next year. Brilliant. Uh, there's no dates or, or venues set at the moment. Um, they'll start getting booked in very shortly. Um, so, yeah, that that's going to go ahead again this year. 
Excellent. Um, so where can people find the, the website? Because you have a lot of resources on there, don't you? Yes. So the website, www.ourbluelight.com. There's information about the relay, um, resources, um, wh- where and to get help if you need it. Um, and, you know, future events that we're going to be doing. Excellent. Are they on um, social media as well? Yeah, we're on Facebook, Blue, uh, Facebook, Bluetooth, uh, Facebook, <laughs> uh, Twitter, Instagram, in, um, LinkedIn. I think uh, pretty much all of them, I think. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, if people want to reach out to you specifically, where can they find you online? So they can get through. If they get through to ourbluelight.com, you'll see um, myself on there. Um, you can drop me an email through the page um, or you'll find me on Twitter, Facebook. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's where I usually hide out. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, Wayne, I want to say thank you so much. It's been uh, you know, a different conversation, you know, and, and I know obviously our blue light was going to be the core, but I love getting the perspective being British, but now being over here, you know, there's, there's things that I thought I knew, but that was almost 20 years ago now. So I'm, I'm learning so much about <laughs> that. And plus, like I said, I was never a fireman over there. So I really don't know much about the British fire service. So it's been interesting to hear the things that we have in common and then the things that, that you're doing differently. And, and a great correlation for me is, is that interaction between NHS and employee. Like you have to, You've eliminated any of the red tape to someone in a career getting hurt, getting treatment, and coming back to work. So that was really interesting to hear. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk. No, thank you. It's been good talking to you.